Jenny was adopted when she was very young by an amazing mom and dad who showed her what unconditional love really was. Due to her early traumas, Jenny struggled growing up, but finally had a couple of years of stable relationships with her parents. Then both parents were diagnosed with terminal cancer and they died nine months apart. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review. I'd really appreciate it. And now, Jenny's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have with me Jen, and Jen is on the other side of the pond. She has a beautiful uh, accent. I just can't wait until I mute myself and I get to listen to her. I have a sister-in-law who is um, from England, and she always sounds just so um, sophisticated and intelligent. I always talk about when we were at Christmas one year and we were, you know, you pass the wrapping paper to one person and I would be like, give me your, give me your garbage. And she's like, hand me your rubbish. And I was like, oh, sounds so much better. <laughs> uh, but Jen um, is here to tell us her story. She signed up for the, to be on the podcast after I asked for that on Instagram. And unfortunately, Jen is not only a daughter without a mom. She's also a daughter without a dad, but I am going to turn the mic over to her and let her introduce herself and tell us her story. And then when she's done, I'll come back and ask some questions and have a little conversation. So thanks so much for being here. Appreciate your willingness to share your story. Thank you. Hello. Um, well, I'm from the UK. I'm 30 years old. Um, and as as I said, I lost both my mom and my dad. Um, I lost them very, very close together, nine months and nine days, um, to be exact. Um, both to cancer, different types of cancer. My dad had pancreatic cancer, and my mom had a form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, my mom was actually diagnosed first, but died last. Um, we were told when she got diagnosed in 2018 that she probably had 10 plus years left. Um, and she was fine, she wasn't ill. It was just by chance that they found it on, she had a problem with her stomach and it was completely unrelated. Um, and it was found through blood tests from that. Um, Dad's, dad woke up and was yellow one day. Um, and so we knew something was obviously very wrong. We went to the doctors and was very quickly diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, he had the he had surgery, I think it was called Wibble. I can't remember the exact name, but I think it was Wibble surgery. Um, and he seemed to be doing well. Um, and we were told he was in remission. And that was in the summer of 2019. Um, and then within six weeks, he was sick again. Um, and that time we were told that it had spread and that there was nothing more we could do. Um, and he finally passed away after, well, after being very sick for the last month, especially in and out of hospital and oxygen and losing so much weight. He passed away just after Christmas. Um, on the 28th of December, 
Um, after that, I guess mum just gave up. Um, they'd been married since 1984. Um, they'd been together 12 years before they were married. Um, and they were madly in love still. <laughs> um, they couldn't have children of their own. Um, they tried for more than 10 years, um, but it just didn't happen. So eventually they decided to adopt and they adopted me and my brother. Um, and we were both very young, not school age yet. Um, and they were the most amazing parents, so unconditional. Um, and they put up with a lot, <laughs> um, right from the word go, going from those children to my brother's just a year and three days older than me. Um, so going from no children to two toddlers <laughs> overnight, <laughs> you can imagine, especially if you know anything about children who have been adopted or in care or taken away from their biological parents, there's already trauma there. Um, so not the best behaved toddlers, if if any toddlers are. We probably were at the very top end of the scale. <laughs> um, but they loved us unconditionally from the word go. And they did everything for us. Um, we went to any club we wanted to go to growing up. We, if we wanted something, we'd get it. We'd have to save half and then they'd give us the other half. But they always, we always got it. Um, I wanted a dog. I got a dog. Um, eventually, once I'd passed enough quizzes about dog care and things like that, um, they, at the age of 11, I finally got my dog. Um, and then I wanted a horse, <laughs> um, which I'd been riding, well, since they adopted me, actually. Um, and eventually, again, after saving up a lot of money myself um, and them helping me and having to learn a lot about horses and horse care and volunteering at places. Um, I finally got my horse when I was 13 and my mum was petrified of horses. She hated the animals. She was so scared of them, um, but that she would have just done anything for me. <laughs> um, but that didn't stop me from being an absolute nightmare of a child and a teenager. I would run away. I would I was smoking cigarettes at the age of 11. I'd tried cannabis by the age of 13. Um, I was staying out all night and doing things that nobody wants their child doing. Um, but rather than, well, don't get me wrong, I'd, I'd get told off, but I never, never got made to feel like they didn't love me or didn't care or anything like that whatsoever. Um, and I'd, I'd scream at them, you're not my real mum, you're not my real dad, you can't tell me what to do. Um, and they never once said anything back that made me feel bad, <laughs> ever. Um, luckily, I, because of them, I eventually came out of that part of my life. Um, I started working, at, I went to college at 16, um, started an apprenticeship. Um, and started working with children with special needs um, at the age of 16 as a sort of one-to-one -one in nursery schools and things like that. Um, and once I started working and earning my own money, I guess I realised what they did for me. Um, 
And also I started seeing kids who, whose parents probably didn't care about them. And it made me realise how much they really did love me and care for me. Um, and I'm grateful that I learned it when I did. Um, because obviously losing them in my 20s, a lot of my friends are still out wild partying in their 20s and they probably haven't yet realised what their parents do for them. Um, and I feel lucky that I got those few years and apologised. <laughs> I did apologise to both my parents um, about my behaviour and how I treated them. Um, my mum more so than my dad. My dad, uh, on his when he was on his deathbed, was when I apologised to him. Um, he was, I was always a daddy's girl growing up um, until I hit my teenage years and then I did not want to know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, when he got taken into hospital, it was Christmas Day he got taken into hospital um, the last time. And... I, I was actually not even at home. <laughs> um, I was somewhere else for Christmas that year. Um, and I obviously came back as soon as I got the phone call and we was taking shifts at the hospital with him. Um, but there was no, no beds, so he was put on an Alzheimer's ward, um, which was interesting <laughs> um, I mean, my grandma had Alzheimer's, so we had experience of it anyway. Um, but my dad's last hours being on a Alzheimer's ward were not the best. <laughs> um, on just just before he passed away, I came out of his cubicle, and <laughs> as I came out of his cubicle, there was an elderly gentleman swinging his um, private parts, making helicopter noises. Um, so it was quite a surreal moment um, and then as I walked around the corner I got whisked away into a dance by some other elderly gentleman um, so I left the world laughing which was very strange um, but my dad was a bit of a jokester anyway um, he liked playing practical jokes and being silly and things like that so in a way I feel like he probably would have found that quite funny um but as I, I was leaving to go and take my turn at home and walk the dog um and my brother and his wife had got back to the hospital um and my mum had stayed there the whole time anyway um but I was going back to the house to walk the dog and we only lived 10 minutes away and as I got the lead on the dog um and I opened the front door to go out my brother phoned to say that my dad had died <laughs> um so I wasn't actually there which I beat myself up about a lot at first um but when I'd been speaking to my dad the night before um he was totally unresponsive I'd been just talking to him all night long um I had um said to him that I didn't know if I could see him die um, and I didn't know if I'd be able to deal with actually seeing it. Um, and no one else knew I'd said that. Um, and I just found it 
very strange that it, the nurses had said he still probably like I still had time to go and walk the dog but I'd asked them um and I, I'd been gone 15 minutes um and it was almost like he knew that that I didn't want to be there or that I couldn't deal with it or and yeah it's uh that was the longest dog walk I've ever been on. <laughs> I just walked and walked and cried and screamed and cried some more <laughs> um, for hours and hours and hours um, until it was dark. <laughs> um, and then I went back to the hospital where my mom and brother and his wife still were. Um, and by that point, that looked very calm and peaceful. Um, which was nice because he hasn't been. I always had this picture that you see on telly when people die, they're, they're laying in bed all peacefully and it's quiet and just beeping noises. But my dad and my mum <laughs> were, my dad was writhing around the bed. He was in pain. He was, he couldn't breathe. He was, it was horrible. There was nothing peaceful, nothing peaceful at all about it. Um, but he looked peaceful by the time I got back. Um, and he was in his own clothes again, which was better because um, he was in a hospital gown before and he hated hospital gowns. <laughs> um, and then, as I said before, after dad died, mum just, she gave up. Um, she didn't want to eat. I, I'd, I was living with them anyway to help care for dad. Um, so then it was just me and mum and she didn't want to eat. She'd never cried in front of me. Um, she wouldn't, she, apart from at the funeral, which I don't remember, in all honesty. Um, yeah, I don't remember it. <laughs> um, I did a speech, I know that, because um, no one else wanted to and I couldn't have no one do one. Um, my dad's best friend, um, my uncle Brian, he tried to do one before mine and he couldn't do it. <laughs> um, but I don't remember my speech, but I know I got through it. Um, and then I don't remember much more than that um, about the funeral at all or after it. Um, but he's buried at the most beautiful place, which is a um, woodland burial ground. So there's no gravestones, there's only little plaques on the floor. And um, for every few um, sites, there is a tree planted. Um, so eventually the whole entire place will just be a woodland. Um, and all the plaques get, once the trees all grow and it's wooded, they get moved and put along a wall. Um, so you won't always know the exact point where your loved ones are, but I just love the idea of it. Um, love the idea of it um and it's beautiful you've got lovely views it's on a hill and it's just a lovely place to go and remember people and my dad and sadly I know quite a lot of people there but it's a beautiful place um and then so yeah I was living with mum um and she she didn't want to eat I was cooking every night um and she she'd try and eat but I could see she didn't want to. She was losing weight. Um, she was still trying to be her normal chirpy self, um, go about her daily things. Um, but she was she was just different. She'd lost her soulmate. Um, 
and yeah she went when well as I'd said before she'd had nearly 10 years or more than 10 years they said she's likely to live um and then it was a Sunday afternoon I'd just cooked a big roast dinner um for the two of us she'd um had trouble eating it she said she had an earache um so she ate some of it um and took some paracetamol went up to bed to have an early night which she didn't normally do at all um but she went up to bed I went in to check on her before I went to bed um and she was she said she felt a bit rough but we took her temperature it was slightly higher but nothing major um but we just thought she had an infection. And obviously we've got COVID during all of this as well. Um, this is now September 2020. Um, and so she went to bed. I woke up the next morning um, really early, about half four, quarter to five in the morning. Um, bolt upright, didn't know why I'd woken up. Um, went downstairs to get a drink and then poked my head around mum's door. Um, and it, there, there was just diarrhea everywhere, and I mean everywhere. <laughs> it was up the walls. It was all in her bed. It was all over her, and she was just laying there. Um, and so I um, cleaned everything up and was like, asked her why she didn't call out, why she didn't wake me up, and she just said she was fine. She didn't want to worry me. Um. But I sort of knew then, I could just tell that something really wasn't right. Um, and so I was begging her to let me call her ambulance and she wouldn't let me. And I took her temperature and it was like 34 degrees. Uh, so dangerously low. Um, and she still wouldn't let me call an ambulance. So I went out the back and I called the doctor um, from our local GP and he said that I needed to bring her down, uh, bring a stool sample down as soon as I could. Um, so I went to the doctors and I got a point, I come back and I got her to take a stool sample. When I took it down there before he'd even took it in, he said to me, he said, um, I take it you do know that this is like the end your mum was told at a last appointment back in August that she probably only had a couple of weeks left to live and she hadn't told me she hadn't told anyone not a single person not her sister who she was really close to not my brother not anyone no one knew um so I went home and obviously I said to her that what the doctor had told me and she was cross with the doctor for telling me um and she said she was fine and that she didn't want to go to hospital and there was nothing I could do except I don't know just try and look after her more um but there was nothing I could do she was it was horrible um really horrible um it was like her body was just empty in itself completely. Um, after about four hours, she eventually let me take her to the hospital in my car. So I drove her there and 
but because it was COVID, they wouldn't let me in, so I had to leave her at the door. And uh, she couldn't even talk at that point. And uh, <laughs> so I gave her a hug and told her I loved her at the doors. And that was the last time that I saw her conscious at all. And so I went home, back to an empty house, completely empty house. And my, my brother, who lives a four-hour drive away, because um, she hadn't let me ring him either. She'd been telling me I didn't need to. So I rang him. And he'd asked what the hospital had said, and I'd said that they said they'd let me know. And that he said he wasn't going to drive down until he heard, like, until he knew for sure that he needed to. Um, so it was probably about two hours later when they rang and said, You need to come. Um, so obviously, I'd rung him and told him that, but it's four hours' drive away. And I rang her sister as well. I'd already rung her sister, to be fair, my auntie. She came, she came to the house, so I wasn't on my own. Um, and then my brother eventually got there, and then we went up the hospital. Um, and when we got there, they just she'd, she'd had a um, DNR in place, but apparently she'd asked for it to be removed um, only until we'd got there. Um, so she wanted to be kept alive until until we got there, and then she didn't want it anymore. Um, but they they warned us before they went in that they'd been pumping her for a long time at this point, and that her lungs had just completely filled and seized up, and it wasn't pretty, basically. But she was still breathing with help. Um, so we went in and there was blood coming out of nose, there was blood coming out of ears, there was blood coming out of mouth. Just and I just collapsed at the door, just couldn't go in. <laughs> I never went in. The next thing I remember was I was in the staff room, sitting in the staff room with some nurses and a receptionist. And I don't remember anything in between that. And um then a little while later, my brother and my aunt come in and they took us to the family room. And my brother told me that she died. And then and then we went back to well, then we stayed there for a while and while they cleaned her up and I went back in then to see her, but I couldn't go near her because all I could see, even though she was clean, all I could see was was the blood everywhere. And I couldn't couldn't go near her, I couldn't touch her or anything. And um they gave me her rings, which which I put on straight away and um have kept on, funnily enough, until just a couple of weeks ago when I started started learning to be a plasterer and they kept getting filled up with plaster, so I've taken them off and put them put them somewhere safe. Um but then we came back to my house, well, their house, and um, the next uh, 48 hours were just a total blur. Um, after 48 hours, the house was empty again, um, apart from my dog and my cat <laughs> and me, um, obviously. Um, 
And then one of my friends, because when my mum and dad had retired, they'd moved um, about 70 miles away from the place we'd grown up, um, that we'd lived all our lives. We'd lived in the same house for 20 years and they retired from Essex to Suffolk. Um, And so we was living in Suffolk and I knew no one up in Suffolk because ever since we'd moved there, I mean, mum's mum's diagnosis was in Essex and dad's was within a month of him, of us moving to Suffolk. Um, So I had spent the entire time there just, just with them, (laughs) Um, not making friends or doing anything. So I had no one really close by, um, but I had some really good friends in Essex. So one of them came and stayed with me. Um, after everyone else had left, all the family had gone. She stayed with me until the funeral, um, which was nice. But mum's funeral was um, on the first day of the tier lockdowns that we had in England. Um, and we was in the, the worst tier of it. So the funeral was only allowed, I think it was like 20 people. Um, including the vicar or the person taking the ceremony. Um, and there was no no wake, no celebration of life afterwards, no, no nothing afterwards. Um, so we had to tell a lot of people who had been planning to come that they now weren't allowed to come because of the new rules. So we had to pick and choose, which was awful and hard, to, um, knowing who to pick, like, it just was so hard <laughs> um telling people that had known mum longer than I've been alive that actually sorry you can't come to her funeral <laughs> was um heartbreaking <laughs> um and then everybody went home even I mean my brother who's who'd driven four hours to get there he stayed for the ceremony and then drove four hours back again um it was a very lonely time after the funeral. It was like I should have just been over it. Um, like it was all done and dusted. We we're in the middle of a lockdown. Um, I'm 70 miles at least from anybody that I know. Um, and I felt so alone. <laughs> so very, very alone. Um, a lot of my friends didn't know how to deal with it. They never lost anyone. Um, not a grandparent even, let alone a pet both parents say rather than just try they just disappeared (laughs) um I had probably two friends I felt like and that was it um and they obviously had their own lives as well so there was only so many times they could be around um I'd go sometimes days or weeks without speaking to a single person um and mum wanted to be cremated when she died she didn't want to be buried but we got special permission to have her ashes scattered over dad's grave so we did that my brother drove down on on mum's birthday actually he came down um the first birthday after her death and my aunt and my cousins or some of my cousins um all came and we scattered the ashes which again, it was funny because we said my dad must be there playing a joke because my dog, my dog came with us. <laughs> um, and as we scattered the ashes, the wind blew and absolutely covered my dog in them. Um, which 
my aunt in particular was horrified <laughs> um but me and my brother both sort of had a little giggle about it because that again is the sort of silly thing that my dad would have found hilarious <laughs> um yeah yeah and since then I've after it all happened I went into a dark place we was in lockdown I hadn't been working because I'd been caring for my dad in particular but then as well my mum um I suddenly had no income um at all whereas my mum was helping me out with money well I was living at home and I had no need for money other than diesel to go shopping for food and to go and get food so um we I suddenly had no money um I had to get a job um we were in lockdown people were losing their jobs I suddenly had a four-bedroom house that I had to pay for bills and everything else luckily it was mortgage-free um but I still has bills that I'd I, I mean I'd lived in a little flat on my own before but never a big house like that um and so I found whatever job I could and started delivering pizzas <laughs> um and then when the restaurant opened, when lockdown came to an end, I started working in the kitchens and um, ended up as supervisor there. Um, and then I decided that it was time to get back into what I'd always done and working with children, um, particularly children, vulnerable children and children who um, with disabilities. Um, so I got in touch with an old friend I used to work with and he was just actually in the middle of opening a children's home um, for teenagers um, who had been through a lot of trauma themselves. Um, and I've spent the last 18 months um, working there, which was hard and amazing and happy and sad and everything in between. Um, I worked all over Christmas, which was a godsend um, because I would have been alone at Christmas. Um, my brother was with his wife's family um, and my aunt was with all her children. I mean, if I had asked, I could have gone there, but I wasn't invited. Um, so I didn't feel like there was a space for me I guess I know I know they love me and they care for me but there's a lot of them <laughs> um and my aunt in particular has struggled a lot with mum passing um my aunt is a few years younger than my mum and they were best friends they spoke on the phone every other day at least they saw each other at least once a week um and my aunt has struggled more than anyone I believe um and she's probably been my biggest support because she's probably the only person that will speak to my mum about me, with me, about my mum with me, sorry. <laughs> um, she's, yeah, she, my brother doesn't really talk about her. I haven't got anyone else to talk about her with, um, but my aunt will talk about her as much as she can, <laughs> um, which is nice. Um, and we try and talk on the phone once a week normally on a Sunday <laughs> um and yeah it's nice to talk about her with my dad didn't have any siblings um so there's not really anyone I mean there isn't any there's in America we've got lots of hot in America um 
but which actually my dad one of my dad's cousins who lives in California he flew over for my dad's funeral which was lovely um but I've not really spoken to them since <laughs> um apart from to tell them mum had died um I guess I don't know we didn't have much contact before so there's not really been much since um and yeah that's that's it on the Hopwood side <laughs> there's no one else so there's no one to really talk about dad with um which is sad because he was a good person a really good person he only ever worked he had two jobs his whole life that was it um I think I had more than that in my first year of working <laughs> um but he worked for PG Tips Tea Company, and then he worked as a sales manager for a plastics company um, that supplied plastics to places like zoos for the enclosures. So, as as children, we used to get like season tickets to the zoo because he'd supplied the plastic, <laughs> which was cool. So, I think I got my love of animals from my dad, um, and my mum loved animals, but my dad loved all animals um would stop to talk to a cow in a field <laughs> um which I definitely got from him because I mean I stopped to talk to any animal <laughs> um but yeah yeah and then after I've gone off track so <laughs> um after working with children just recently um I decided that I needed a change that working with children with so much trauma when I have also experienced a lot of trauma um, from very early childhood um, and then more recently with with both parents passing um, it was too much for me and it was affecting my mental health quite a lot um, and I didn't do very well in school because of my teenage years and I've spent a lot of time saying it's all right for men because if they don't get qualifications, they can go into a trade and earn good money. With women, you've either got hairdressing or you've got childcare and there's not that much money in either of them things. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, hold on, why can't I go into a trade? Just because I'm a girl doesn't mean I can't go into a trade. Um, and my dad was a firm believer that you would never pay for anything that you could learn to do yourself. Um, he tiled, he painted, he fixed things, he made things. He, yeah, so that's how he'd been brought up. And so I have recently found a college and I'm on a, currently on a six-week intensive program learning how to become a plasterer, um, which is amazingly fun. And makes me feel connected to my dad while I'm doing it as well um which I love and recently I've started to feel happier again <laughs> um I feel like I'm doing more for me now I feel like I've spent so many years doing things for other people for for my dad for my mum not that I would change any of it um but for for these kids that I've worked with, for the kids that I worked with previously, it's always been about other people. Um, and there's one thing I've learned from my parents' passing is that you're not guaranteed to get old. That is not guaranteed. They, they'd only been retired by less than a year. Um, 
none of their plans. They had holidays booked that they never got to go on. Um, they had they had big plans, as I said. They just moved to to quiet little village in Suffolk to enjoy their retirement that they never got to enjoy. So I want to do the rest of my life for me <laughs> um, and not waste another day of being unhappy. <laughs> um, so I'm doing, doing my college course and because my mum and dad did own a house, mortgage-free, me and my brother sold that and got half the inheritance each from it. Um, and I spent every single penny of mine buying a rundown house <laughs> um, that I can't currently live in. Um, but I am, I have brought it all back to brickwork and I am now learning to plaster. So give it four weeks and it will be fully plastered by myself. <laughs> um, and I love it. And it's my little bit of safety net and something that I got because of my mum and dad um and because they worked so hard all their lives both of them to make sure that me and Daniel were looked after um and so now I need to make them proud and that's what I'm gonna do wow wow jeez um well I mean good for you that you are realizing that you need to spend time on you because that is that is really important I'm really sorry about what you went through during COVID because that's just that's just so hard it break it breaks I mean at least you're you they allowed people in to be with your mom but there's a lot of people who died alone and that just well breaks my heart they did say that they actually made a um there wasn't meant to be anyone in and if there was it was only one person at a time and they they did break the rules for us they said that um the nurses were amazing (laughs) and we couldn't thank them anymore because they were really amazing and we are lucky in this country to have the nhs (laughs) um very lucky (laughs) um and the nurses who dealt with covid are well they're heroes aren't they yeah Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah Um, and I think the part that you were saying about, um, that you weren't there when your dad died, I've heard many kinds of versions of this. And, and I think that it's amazing that if people still have the control over their soul to be able to say, okay, I want to go now. Um, yeah. 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 Um, I hated it at first. I really did. I was so glad couldn't get my head around it I was angry that I wasn't there but then the more I thought about it, I thought but I told him I didn't want to be I said that like I said those words Mm -hmm. so why am I angry (laughs) um and then in comparison to the reaction you had seeing your mom I mean even though I know your dad probably was not bleeding from all the things like your mom was but you said that he was in excruciating pain yeah yeah obviously watching somebody you love suffer to those kinds of degrees is is very difficult um to be able yeah. to handle so yeah um I when you were describing you know your mom I'm really like oh that's have I have struggled I mean mine's been 38 years of of like the last time I saw my mom my mom she was in a hospital bed barely breathing and it took me a long time to be able to reprogram my brain that when I thought about her, the first 
image that popped up in my mind wasn't that. You know yeah. what I mean? No, go there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, keep working on it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I used to keep a picture that I, you know, one of my favorite pictures of her. Yeah, I've got yeah, I've got some pictures that I keep. But one right in my purse actually from um it was from when she very first um when we very first the very first time she met met us. Oh, well you guys can't see. <laughs> hear this because she's showing me a picture we're on zoom and she's showing me a picture my dad's oh. as well <laughs> yeah look at how what a blondie you were I mean you still yeah. are but but they called yeah. it like a towhead blonde you were yeah so much white yeah mm -hmm. wow hmm. yeah um but I yeah I hope you continue to work on giving yourself some grace about the guilt you feel about your dad and that eventually that your your first memory of your mom will be replaced of one that's um, of a happier time because I I don't think anybody wants to be remembered that way but unfortunately I think this way our brains work because of survival techniques that yeah, <clears throat> yeah that we tend to hold on to those negative things yeah <laughs> yeah not kisses it but yeah it's um yeah something I'm working on definitely talking about happy memories and looking at pictures when I feel I can because I can't always mm -hmm. <laughs> um but is it definitely helps um to change that image in my head I think yeah um, so you're obviously like a visual kind of person do you do and are you like into do you do art or anything or paint or draw or not so much anymore. I've I always used to do a lot of art, sketching, and um, things like that with with the kids. I always do. I've got two godsons who every time I go around, we have to do art. <laughs> um, <laughs> always telling me something to draw, whether it's Spider Man or uh, alligator or whatever it is. Um, it's probably something I should do more of. Um, yeah. I think. Finding yeah. time again, isn't it? It's uh, mm -hmm. finding that time for me. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly since I've been doing this plastering course, it's exhausting. <laughs> um, but that's know. a bit of a visual thing also, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I do a lot of baking as well. Um, that is something I do that I find I can just get lost doing for hours and it's really quite therapeutic um making I'm always making birthday cakes if it's someone's birthday it's me making a cake or yes um yeah. yeah yeah I think things like like um plaster and and things that it does create it does require a visual component <clears throat> that if you don't like I don't have like spatial judgment and straight lines and things like that I'm not the best with. So I can see that that would be um, a benefit for you in that trade. If, if you do have, yeah. if you can look at an alligator and recreate it, then you obviously have yeah. some. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have that gift. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and just the other thing that really struck me is that like your parents were remarkable people that they yeah. held you accountable, but never um made you feel like judged or not loved oh, or the most unconditional 
the most unconditional people I had ever met in my life. And all my friends would say it. They were so non-judgmental. Um, I mean, if I had, I had a friend who had a quite bad drug problem at one point and I spoke to my parents about it, they never stopped him coming to the house. They never judged him. They tried to help him. Um, they were just, they were just amazing. They, they really were. Um, yeah, I, the things I put them for, I stole off them, which I hate to even admit, but as a teenager, I did. Um, mm-hmm. And they knew it. And I had sanctions put in place, but was, again, was never made to feel like it was my fault. It was always that they understood that it was always just something going on in my head that I was trying to work through. Um, And there's so many people who are just not like that. (laughs) Um, And my mum was definitely more like that than my dad. But she also wore the trousers, <laughs> um, so so dad had to go along with it. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, he was happy to. <laughs> Clearly, he was happy to. Um, mm-hmm. And again, he never. There was he'd ignore you um, if he if you'd done something to upset my dad. He would just blank you. Um, which again, my mum would never do. She'd talk to you about it and explain it and tell you how why it made her feel like that and things like that, which again I think it's pretty amazing when you're being screamed and yelled at by an angry 13 year old and door slammed in your face um she never once called me a name never once swore at me never nothing (laughs) um like awful (laughs) I, I well and I'm trying to wrap my head around that because I you know went through stuff with both of my teenage daughters and for the most part I didn't give them the power to push me to that point. But I will tell you that there were days where I lost my, you know, yeah. and I, and I reacted and I engaged in a way that I was not proud of at all. And I would apologize, you know, and things, but like, yeah. how remarkable, like, what do you, like, I'm, I'm trying, I'm sitting here thinking like, how did they have that kind of foundation? I wonder if it was from uh, uh, struggling with infertility or if, you know, things that they endured as a couple that made I them think, I think they struggled so long and my they both wanted children so badly we were always told always knew we were adopted always um always when if we asked questions we had a tummy mummy um and we had mm. our mummy and daddy um and we were always told we were the chosen ones we were the like they wanted us so much and it was always always that and we always felt that as well um yeah (laughs) I mean I'm I find that extremely remarkable um yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. um and I I mean I when I say I was bad I don't even know how to put it into words how bad um even at the age of four my mum would say that she would have to I don't remember it I don't have very many early memories at all um but she said that she would have to take my brother and herself and lock them in the bathroom because I would just hurt them (laughs) otherwise um and again it's all trauma related things that had happened to me pre-adoption um and she just put up with so much and having worked with children in care Mm -hmm. there is so many people who give these kids back so many so so many they take them and they adopt them 
and then the first hiccup they say not for me thanks um and they never did that I never even felt like that was an option (laughs) um and I don't think they did to them that wasn't an option the minute they signed those papers we were theirs and nothing was changing that um and they brought us up like that as I said about our animals um we always had to read a set amount of books about an animal before we got a pet and we had to answer a quiz on that animal if we got any question wrong we weren't getting that animal (laughs) um and once we had that animal we had it for life there was no bring home in it no selling it no nothing that was part of the family and that was how it was going to be um and somehow along the years I've ended up with all sorts of waifs and stray animals that I seem to take in and have for life from lizards to hedgehogs to guinea pigs and horses and cats Um, yeah well I think as you continue to get older you know you're the ripe age of 30 you said now um, as you get older and enter different seasons of your life I think you will continue to look back on your parents and just be like I keep coming up it's just remarkable it is remarkable the foundation that they had and provided for you and your brother um, is really remarkable so usually I wrap up with there's you know a final any piece of advice or something else that you'd like to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Do you have anything you'd like to share? Um, my only bit of advice would be to just don't lose yourself completely amongst the grief. Even if it's just one little tiny thing that you do for yourself each day, whether it's going for a walk, if that's what you want to do, or have a nice bath with some candles or, just talk to a friend on the phone <laughs> just try and do something for yourself um and if if that thing is just sitting and crying even then then just let it out <laughs> um because it's so easy to lose yourself and forget who you really are I think um because it does change you um and that's okay but you've got to, yeah, just remember who you are <laughs> and keep that person there, the person that your mum and dad, in my case, um, or whoever it is that they that they knew and they helped you to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and smile. <laughs> and always smile because it's so contagious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jen, and for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. If you liked this episode or you are a fan of the show, the best way to support it is to share it on social media and with your family and friends. For more of my thoughts on the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. As always, remember, we can use grace, grit, and gratitude to grow with our grief.